0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Eric Cook, head of school at Covenant Classical School and president of the Society for Classical Learning. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the Dallas Baptist University-sponsored CLT is coming up on April 17th. Applicants to DBU can receive a full fee waiver for the CLT. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today is an exciting day. We have Mr. Eric Cook. Eric is the head of school at Covenant Classical in Fort Worth, Texas. Eric, welcome. Thanks for being here. Great to be on the show. Thank you. So, Eric, let's uh, start off, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your academic background. What kind of schools did you go to growing up, uh, and how did you discover this whole world of classical education?
2: Uh, thanks, Jeremy. First, let me say thank you to CLT. You guys are uh, an inspiration, encouragement, and appreciate the work that you're doing and the team you've built and advocating for you know, things that we share as really important for our culture, for our kids. So, thank you. I grew up uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. I went to public school all of my life, and then uh, went on to Transylvania University, which is a liberal arts, small liberal arts school there in in Lexington as well. And went on, got a master's in instructional leadership from Northern Kentucky University. So I, I didn't have any uh, classical or anything uh, in any of my education background. So I discovered it very organically. Tell us about that process. Is this through your own reading or? Well, so what happened was I, I went into education um, and started teaching the public school. And so I, but I did the very traditional sit and get method. So I would, I was teaching history and civics. And so I would have students, you know, take down notes, copy it from the board, regurgitate it on the test because uh, I was just locked into that mode and really wasn't very creative or thoughtful about how to, how to do it differently. But what started happening is I after I became a Christian and and became uh, felt called to preach, um, I started studying like crazy at night on my own. I studied uh, philosophy, theology, history, and I would stay up late into the night reading and I love learning. But when I got into the classroom, I defaulted to this very, you know, rote sit and get method. So I started experimenting on my students. And so what I would do is I would bring in a quote for uh, the students that I would put on the board at the beginning of class. And so it'd be from Dostoevsky or it'd be from, you know, Augustine. And then they would have to write out what they the quote meant and how it applied to their life. Well, the first 10 minutes of class would just come alive. And the students were interested. They had thoughtful answers. They would debate about, you know, the question. And I discovered something in that time that this is what really mattered to students. But at the time, I just would flip the switch uh, after the 10 minutes, go back to the sit and get method. So I started playing with that more. I eventually started a philosophy club uh, where we could huh. dive into these questions. And I would have 60 or 70 students coming after school talking about Descartes and, you know, questions about the existence. Wait, this is
1: a um, public school or a
2: Christian school? has been a public school. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So, um, so then uh, for the, by the time I got to my second year, I, I had reframed education altogether and and started the class by asking every student, saying every thinking human being must you know, engage with four fundamental questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How do I tell right from wrong? What happens when I die? And so they had to go home, answer those questions and bring them back and yeah. <laughs> talk about them in the class. So the idea was, was reframing our education Uh, around these fundamental human questions, that's what it was really about. So when you studied history, it was really like the Daniel Borsten discoverers, you know, idea where everyone's searching for meaning, and truth, and purpose. And history is just an expression of that. So whether it's in industry or politics, or people seeking justice or power. um, So that changed everything. And all of my teaching became more Socratic and uh, uh, framed around big ideas and great texts.
1: I love that story that that you really, I mean, organic is the best word to describe it. That you just kind of kind of followed the, the, the truth trail in education and, and led you to where you are now. Um, so you're currently wearing some really big hats. You you have the dad hat. You have six kids on the home front. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're the head of a school, of a growing school. Uh, tell us a bit about SCL. What is, what is the work SCL is focused on in 2021? Well, actually, I have been the executive director.
2: And then this past year, I switched over to president and hired an executive director, Davies Owens. So I'm really uh, uh, grateful for that. But yeah, I've been in with uh, the SCL since 2010. Went from being a board member, secretary, into board chair, and then executive director, and then uh, president this past year. So um, you know, I got into this because I'm I'm passionate about seeing the classical Christian school movement thrive nationwide and, and worldwide. And I think it's the most promising educational movement that's out there. And so we exist. Uh, our, our mission is to cultivate human flourishing by helping classical Christian education thrive. So we do basically whatever is needed to help a school flourish and thrive. So right, we're focused in on right now is leadership development and training. That's not the only thing we do, but what we've seen across the 400 plus classical Christian schools around the nation is that they have great aspirations. They have clearly articulated mission and vision, and they have um, strong cultures, but there's not enough leaders to really sustain the movement and, and for the schools to be uh, thriving and flourishing. There's a lot of complicated issues from governance and executive leadership and fundraising and all, plus all the political issues. There's so many things out there that legal issues that you have to navigate as a head of school or as a board that we want to make sure we're supplying the, the kind of uh, tools necessary uh, for those schools to make it, and that means uh, good leadership.
1: So, I, Eric, I have a very clear memory. I think it was New York, 2017, and you gave a, a speech. I believe it was an Alcuin event that I thought was was really sobering and really powerful. And essentially, you were making an argument that making the case that classical Christian education cannot just be for uh, the affluent. That we've got to find ways to extend this kind of education, which is truly the best kind of education. Uh, to all students, regardless of of socioeconomic background. Uh, Talk to us about the work SCL is doing to make this happen.
2: Yeah, this is something that's really important and something I'm very passionate about. And it's taken, it's been a slow process. And to be honest with you, it's been kind of a starting in my own heart of really thinking about what it means to make an education like this accessible to all. You know, my friend, Russ Gregg, an SCL board member, uh, talks about classical Christian education like a banquet and, and providing that, you know, uh, for all students, you know, uh, equally as best we can. And I think there's a real desire um, to take the good things that classical Christian education provides and make it accessible to more and more families and students in all kinds of, uh, you know, different contexts and demographics and so forth. So I think there's some misconceptions about that. And that, that makes it uh, challenging. But you know, part of what we did was first was gather uh, a, a diverse group of classical Christian leaders and some who were just doing really quality Christian urban education, but not doing it classically. We just wanted to get a group together and what are the questions we need to ask? Who are the the leaders in this? And of course, for us, Greg has been a big part of that. Now I think what we've done is a more direct engagement with the issues themselves and make that part of the platform and and uh, bringing those issues to the surface for the all of our schools to interact with so last summer we we brought in I think some really quality speakers uh, on that at our annual conference we spent some time on it in the fall retreat and we'll do so again um, this fall as well but we're also working to help schools who are starting uh, with the express purpose of doing this in urban settings or with um, students from varying backgrounds, we want to make sure they're getting the resources they need. And then also all of our schools to be thinking about a very broad understanding of um, having a diverse group of learners as part of their, their school body. You
1: know, my first three years out of college, uh, I went to inner city, New York. My wife was doing Teach for America and I was doing an urban teachers program. And we we worked with students, 100% minority student body, uh, many students coming from, from really hard conditions. And when I visited Hope Academy in Minneapolis and and met with Russ and met some of his students, you know, coming from similar backgrounds, I had never so clearly seen the fruit of this kind of education uh, that's really focused on the whole person and is really rooted in love, which, you know, as an education major and at some institutions that can be a worthless major, you you don't hear a lot about the, the centrality of love. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about what does what this mean, holistic education, education that's focused on the heart, and how does that change learning uh, at a place like Covenant Classical?
2: Yeah, so I think that, that part of understanding education as training the affections is perhaps the most formative aspect of what education entails. So you want students to uh, develop affections and a deep love for things that are good, um, that are true, and that are beautiful. And so the way you do that is by giving them Um, things that would, you know, make them attract to them. So great ideas and great texts and great teachers, you know, part of what shapes the affections is by having that person at the front of the room who loves you well and loves the subject well and draws you in and, and, you know, flames your affection for, for whatever it is. For me, it was, it it was history. And then it became, uh, you know, kind of a history and philosophy of ideas and such. And when you get that, um, that's how students get the switch flipped, you know, for them as learners. Mm-hmm. So when you do that around great texts and great teachers, um, that's a transformative experience. And so that's really what we're what we're going for, and what's included in the movement.
1: Well, let's uh, let's chat about great teachers for a minute. I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing how you're staffing at Covenant Classical and, and helping other schools. You know, that are connected to SEL. Um, very few teachers have had an, a classical academic formation themselves. Um, And in fact, many majored in education, like I did, where we actually ingested a whole bunch of bad ideas. Right? How do you find good teachers? Where do you find them? Well, that's
2: that's challenging. You know, depending on what you're looking for, you know, can make it more or less difficult. So, you know, trying to find science teachers and math teachers are especially difficult because you're talking about finding someone who, uh, in our case, is a Christian who um, knows anything at all about the classical uh, tradition. Um, Who's a capable scientist and scholar? Uh, Even checking all those boxes, you know, is pretty difficult. So we have to kind of layer in the training so that when we get people who come who don't have maybe one of those things, then we have to create a system to train and develop. What's interesting is that I think a lot of teachers who come into this who are newer to it are looking for a a kind of prescriptive way of going about the instruction. Like there's a classical Christian manual. You just and people, and you just do it this way, and boom, there, you're a your classical teacher. Um, so we kind of have to reframe the paradigm. You know, we want them to participate in um, the actual uh, tradition and learn how to learn again, essentially, you know, to read the great books, to participate in good conversation, and to be really passionate about that, uh, in addition to getting the pedagogical practices and instructional practices that make them a great teacher. So it's kind of a both and.
1: That's cool. You know, one of the images I have in my head of of hearing somebody in the early days when I was processing classical education, kind of what was it? And I think my own experience was was pretty organic of reading my way into this tradition during seminary. Uh, an illustration with syrup, of all things. Hmm. Um, And she was making the point that this thing we call syrup uh, usually isn't syrup. It's actually just sugary kind of goo, you know. You can find the little maple syrup thing, but most people don't know this thing that they, and that's kind of the case with education. That was the the point the speaker was making that this thing we call education um, mainstream is actually really new. And it's not what was considered education. I mean, I imagine a scenario we think of somebody like, like, ben franklin or how would they have conceived of education apart from logic and grammar and philosophy and really it's almost inconceivable um so there's there's a lot of conversations about scaling this movement I, i've heard you speak about this and you're a visionary you're a leader uh, what are your what are your dreams where, where do you hope to see the classical renewal movement in in 10 or even 20 years
2: well i think it's uh you know it's a really challenging time to, to do this. Even since the time that I came into the movement 10 years ago, now the cultural issues are so intense um, that it's actually, I think, made it more um, difficult to do this and do it well. And there's a lot of obstacles. You've seen the disrupt text uh, movement. I've seen that on the podcast here. And some of those questions, there's all kinds of questions about race and whether the classical tradition uh, is representative of all groups and whether it should be, you know, books within there should be removed. All those things pose real challenges besides, you know, some of the political mess and so forth. But what's coming out of the classical Christian movement, um, the leaders, the thinkers, um, the students, generations of students um, is really exciting and worth contending for. Because, you know, 10, 20 years from now, what I would hope is we have generations of students who have been formed and transformed by their educational experience and classical schools, classical Christian schools, and are now uh, the voices and the leaders and who are passionate and articulate about leading education reform more broadly and really returning to an understanding of education that really is true education. Um, So a reform movement that would come out of that. I also think that, you know, we need really thoughtful, um, articulate Christian um, leaders in our culture and in our political realm and that some of them would serve in those capacities and be in positions of influence where they can talk about um, ideas that are relevant and helpful for our culture, but they're rooted in something really deep and really beautiful and true. And they can bring that to bear in areas of need in their communities and their families. That's the ideal piece of it. But more practically speaking, I'd like there to be more schools uh, accessible to more and more families and students I'd like to see uh, a pipeline of leadership that are prepared to step into the schools and lead them well. Um, I'd like to see a thought leadership continue to, to blossom and things like CLT is doing and more voices and more influential voices talking about what classical education is and its benefits and more collaborative partnerships to help form and build momentum to spread the influence of uh, real meaningful education for, for students. So. That's actually what would make it a legitimate movement. Uh, in the end, I think we're still scrappy at this point and figuring. Yeah,
1: it. I, I get excited hearing hearing you talk about it, Eric. One of the things we we always do in the anchored podcast here is is talk about books. Uh, it's always fun to hear uh, the books that have been most impactful, most formative on people. For you, is there one particular text maybe that you reread every year or come back to uh, that has been most impactful for you? Yeah, so
2: I thought about this question, and I, I, it's hard to do this, of course. You know, I have um, thousands of books, and and so depending on the, the genre and all those kind of things. But um, so you know, when if it's literature, I really love Flannery O'Connor, and their collection of short stories that are, uh, I think, amazing. Uh, but there's a leadership book that is contemporary. It's not a it's not a, a classic, but called "Leading with a Limp. that had a profound impact on me. Mm. And I I do go back to it. I ask all of my uh, leadership team to read it. And the premise is very classical Christian in nature, but it's, it really has to do with that uh, character is fundamental to our leadership. It's the most influential and impactful thing about who we are and how we lead. You know, we, we lead out of who we are. And so if we don't understand that fundamentally, you can become very competent and capable and task oriented and get things done. But if you don't, Deal with your character issues, how you're wired, how you communicate, self-awareness, being able to deal with conflict, manage your emotions, be spiritually healthy. You're not going to thrive as a leader. So I come back to that again and again and again, and um, and have yeah, it's really had a profound impact on me. You
1: know, one of our our mutual friends, um, Dan Peterson over at Regent's, I, I was in Austin with him last summer, and he said I had to go home and read the book Leadership and Self Deception. It's an interesting book because it raises a question. You know, on the one hand, to be in a leadership role as you are, with with uh, you know head of a school and also the head of a society of classical learning, you you have to have some confidence. You know what you're doing. You're doing the right things. You know, but at the same time, arrogance itself can be the most destructive thing to to leadership. How do you how do you balance those two things?
2: Well, I think that's a that's a great question, aligned um, in the same premise in which that book is written. So he says, character is the most important thing about your leadership. Your character is deeply flawed. Um, your character flaws will hurt those in your organization and those you lead. And doing, improving your character is long and slow and complicated and painful. Mm-hmm. So if if you don't have that, and, and again, it's a very biblical understanding of the self, you're sinful and your inclination and your uh, temptation to deceive yourself. And because everybody has the, has the uh, uh, inclination to tell you what you want to hear, right? When you're in a position of leadership, people don't want to give you, cool feedback. They don't want to critique you, but you need to hear it. So you have to put yourself in a vulnerable position and a humble position to welcome that, invite that feedback. Don't even wait on it, but go pursue it. So you have an honest uh, assessment of your weaknesses, deficiencies, and you're leaning into those. You're not deflecting them and deceiving yourself and you end up isolated and, um, and fold in on yourself because that happens too many times in leadership.
1: Again, we're here with Eric Cook, uh, new president for the Society of Classical Learning. Eric, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy.
0: Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.